Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Some of you are probably familiar when you've been on a job interview and the inevitable question comes, what is your greatest strength? So how do you answer that? I, was, I remember in college I was coached on answering what, when they ask you, what is your greatest weakness? You say, I just I'm, I work too hard sometimes. <laughs> or something like that. You know, the, the, uh, the humble bragging. But when they, you're asked what's your greatest strength, we're not used to bragging about ourselves. But if you're honest, you probably know what your strengths are. Are. Not only do we know what we're best at, so does our enemy. He knows what we're best at. Everybody knows that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that he comes attacking our weakness. But often in Scripture you see that he will attack us by way of our strengths. Last time we read 1 Corinthians 1, we saw that Paul confronted the saints at Corinth because of their sectarian division. Well, he continues that thought. Uh, that verse 17 is kind of a transition point of approaching the topic one way. And then in verse 18, he goes at the same point, but from a different angle. Bringing up a story in this passage that would have been familiar to many, it's an Old Testament story. He ex Paul explains here why relying on our human strengths, especially relying on our strengths to bring God's kingdom to bear, whether in our individual lives, in our home, in our church, and in the wider world, it's, it's not only perilous to rely on your abilities and mine, it's contrary to the way God chose to redeem the world. Instead, He calls us to turn loose of everything we possess, of all the things that we believe we're capable of, of all the, all the treasures we see ourselves bringing into the kingdom. And instead, we're told that we have to rely on Jesus alone. Now, I know that's really good evangelical language that's kind of, we hear it enough and we don't really have a lot of meaning that we can attach to it. So hopefully by the end of, of this this morning, you'll, have, you'll be able to apply some more meaning to that. So, so I, I want to consider here in this passage three ways or three attributes of God's work or how God works. Number one, in this text we see that God's work is neither by force nor by miracles. God's work is neither by force nor by miracles. So in verses 19 and 20, after he introduces in, in verse 18 the preaching of the cross is foolishness, 
to some. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes two different passages from Isaiah. In, in 119, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. When he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Then in verse 20, when he says, where is the scribe? Where is the wise? Where is the disputer of this age? That's quoting from Isaiah 33. Now, both of those verses in Isaiah, if you go back and read, please don't do that right now. But if you do, you will see Isaiah 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33. It's all leading up to this, this event. You see, at the time, Jerusalem was surrounded by an army. It was the army of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Sennacherib had them surrounded. He was not going to a direct attack yet. He was surrounding them and laying siege to Jerusalem. And Isaiah was prophesying. He was speaking about what God is doing. When he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, that's a message to God's people saying, look, this king thinks he has everything figured out. He thinks he knows the way to conquer God's people. But I, that is God, will bring to nothing this king's wisdom. He will bring all these great plans, these powerful forces that are, that are supposed to overwhelm Jerusalem. He's going to turn it upside down. And then in verse 20, when he asks, where is the wise, where is the described, where is the disputer of, of this age? He's saying, oh, 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 these plans, this person who, who is able to, to speak eloquently is coming to nothing. The next part of the story in Isaiah, we see that, that King Sennacherib had a spokesman. And this spokesman was on the wall, and so part of laying siege to Jerusalem was taunting Israel. And if you, if you read the story in both Isaiah and it's also in 2 Chronicles, you will see that this spokesman knew what he was doing. It's kind of like, uh, well, it's propaganda. It's trying to defeat God's people by words, by, by, by discouraging them, making them think you don't stand a chance. It doesn't matter what all, all this good news that these prophets and your king is telling you, you're going down. So when Paul quotes it here, where is the person who's, who's saying all of these things? Now he, he's taken it from the context of the Old Covenant in, and the Old Testament now into the New Covenant. When he, when he says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, he's telling them it's not, it's not going to be that way for very long. But in first century Corinth, it's a different, it's a different place. The Christians... In, in, in this time and place, in, in, in Corinth, they were not only besieged by the Greeks, but by the Jews. There were Jewish synagogues there. The Jews demanded a real-life demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah. That they were claimed, that they were demanding signs. They wanted to see. They say, show us something because they saw that you know first century Jews saw themselves 
like Judah in Isaiah's time. They said, we're surrounded by Gentiles, but the time's going to come. The Messiah's going to come, and He's going to wipe out all these Gentiles. He's going to deal with them, and we're going to be back on top. It's just going to be like the time of King Hezekiah when Sennacherib surrounded them, and we saw that God delivered them. They believed that that type of sign was coming. But on the other side, so you have the Jews there, and, and they have this, this elaborate, this great story that God delivers His people, this entire nation, by miracles. But then you have the Greeks at Corinth who expected their superiority in philosophical wisdom and also their superiority in finances. They expected that this is the way the world works. They said, we're bringing reality to bear. They saw themselves, the Greeks saw themselves as the world's superior culture. One that had absorbed and overcome the cultures of Egypt, of Babylon, and of Persia. And even Rome itself, even, even though Rome conquered Greece, still the Greek culture was the dominant culture in many ways because Roman culture, they took the best that the Greeks had and used it. Well, on the other hand, the Christians are lacking in both. The Christians didn't have a long-standing cultural history of miraculous deliverance. They didn't have the sophistication and overwhelming cultural domination of the Greeks. So how could they withstand these weaknesses? I mean, honestly, if you were to look at this, this small movement in the first century, would you give it much of a chance from what you saw at the time? Now, of course, we have hindsight, which is a wonderful thing. But if you lived at the time and you knew that, you know, maybe about 20, 30 years removed, yeah, there's these people that they're claiming that their leader has done these things, but, but come on. I mean, really. Is this going to go anywhere? Greek, Greeks have been around and their culture has been around for over a thousand years. Does it stand a chance? Most people wouldn't have thought so. But Paul is saying God's work is not by cultural, overwhelming cultural force. It's not by just national miraculous deliverance. The Christians... Would, could withstand their apparent weaknesses by this one little detail called the cross. Number two, God's work is through the weakness of the cross. God's work is through the weakness of the cross. The message of Jesus' death on the cross is, we're told, here, foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. When you're vastly outnumbered as the Christians were, you don't form this tight cultural group, this insular band who doesn't let anyone else become part of it. You, you, you don't form militias. You don't specialize in philosophy or rhetorical flair. You have no national demonstrations like when God delivered Judah from Sennacherib. So what do you have? What is it that sets the Christians apart? It's a Savior who was put to death and was 
in some ways you could say discreetly resurrected. Now I know there was a lot of people who, there was up to 500 people of his followers who witnessed him after the resurrection, but could he have appeared to a lot more? You would think. I mean, if, if he wanted everybody around to know in the living world at the time that he was alive, could he have revealed himself? So why didn't he? Because there's something more than signs going on here. The story of Jesus' resurrection, of death and resurrection is not actually flashy. It's not sophisticated. It's the story of a man who came, lived, taught, was crucified, resurrected, and then promised to rule the world without being seen. When, when he's ruling, he's, well, we don't see him physically today. There's no major display here of man's idea of power. The Christians are just here. They meet. They talk about this man who died, saying he's alive. They pray and sing. They eat and drink and they tell others and they slowly grow. For the last 2,000 years, the enemies of the church have yet to understand the power that fills her people. It's foolishness. It really is foolishness. It looks like we are embracing weakness. And you can still read sometimes historians who, who say, it doesn't make a lot of sense why Christianity of all the, the weird religions of the time, why Christianity would be the one that's going to grow and become so large in the world. And humanly speaking, it really doesn't. But praise God, we're not humanly speaking. But the world still does not understand how this group known as Christians manages to survive. Now what they do understand is when we adopt their views and we do things their way. They understand that. And sometimes it may look like we are temporarily successful, like, like going about our work in the world's way can look alluring because, well, that makes sense. That's smart. But Paul is saying, actually, no. We don't use the world's wisdom. We don't use strength the way that they see strength. And often when we have adopted the world's methods, it usually comes back to bite us. So God's work is through the weakness of the cross. But number three, and Paul, he makes a point of this when he's apply, he, he applies it directly to the people. God works through us in spite of our strengths. God works through us in spite of our strengths. Now I want to be careful here. Does God give us the strength that we have? Certainly. And not only does He give us the strength, we're reading the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Those who receive more are expected to use their talents, 
to use what God has given them. You're called to be a steward of what God has given. So I'm saying nothing against that. Whatever your hand finds to do, Paul says in Colossians 3, do it with your might. Amen. But sometimes we have an inflated idea of what we are capable of. We think, if I just get enough, if I just learn enough, if I, if I do enough, if I practice, if I develop what I have enough, then God can really use me to take on all of those outside. And God doesn't take always the most successful, the strongest, or the smartest and just capitalize on their strengths. He takes our strengths, He subdues our strengths, and He lets us return. When we take all that we have, we come to God, we meet with Him. What happens when people meet with God? What do they come back? We see like Jacob, they come back with a limp. They come back with scars. Like the apostles, when they would preach, they're beaten. And what, what happens? They're just thankful that they have the opportunity to be counted worthy of suffering for Christ. Or they come back with bleach marks from being inside a whale. Or they have failures that they can tell you all about. And any other number of gifts. Yes, these are gifts that He gives us. We expect God to use our strengths. And often He does, but our strengths can hinder us. Paul was a Pharisee who was zealous for God. He saw himself as being one like you find in the Old Testament who was striving to do what is pleasing to Yahweh. And Paul's strength, his zeal for God, destroyed people. Ours can as well. Our strengths, apart from submission to God, can overwhelm and do great damage to others. But when Paul became an apostle, not only, as we read in Philippians chapter 3, not only did he set aside, not only did he count as loss all the things, all the, the, the things that were tick marks, all the great things he had done up to that point, not only did he count those but lost, but when he became an apostle, his weaknesses were magnified. What's this about? Why would he use, why would he magnify our weaknesses? Who, does anybody in here like your weaknesses being shown? Do you like people knowing where you're weak? Of course not. We do everything we can to make sure nobody sees me at my weak points. They see me when I'm at my best. I'm not saying flaunt your weaknesses because that is a problem. That's something that we see people talking. Well, that's, that's not our problem, okay? That's not the ditch we're going to fall into. But through the weaknesses of the, of the Apostle Paul, and if, if you question this, read 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Through his weaknesses, God was glorified. 
And the same is true for us. When we are weak, that allows the power of Christ to manifest itself through us in a way that it doesn't when it's only about us using our strength. So what then is the hope for us, both as individuals and as a church? If we have to submit our strengths to God, if we can't just lead with our strengths, what do we do? How can we actually be assured that things are going to go the right way if we can't show what we're capable of? Well, I'll tell you, it's not found in projecting our strengths or hiding our weaknesses. It is only found, Paul says, in the preaching or in the calling of the cross. Have you ever wondered why Paul emphasized the preaching of the cross over the miracles, over the de demonic deliverance that Jesus gave over the healings that he performed? When, when Paul talks about the power of God, it's always either in Christ's humility in His incarnation, like we see in Philippians 2, or His death on the cross. This is what Paul talks about when he wants to exalt Christ. He doesn't say, look at the 5,000 who were fed. He says, look at the one who set aside his glory to come as a man. So let me ask you. When others look at you, do they see you showing the humility of God in your interactions? in your demonstration of everyday life, in the things that you do? Do they see the power of God manifested in, as we heard earlier this morning, in self-control? In grace? In treating others much better than they deserve to be treated? In giving yourself to people in their weakness? In identifying with people. I don't mean that you come alongside them and support them in their sin, but you, we also don't despise people because, well, that's just icky. It's only in laying down our strength, in humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, in giving up all we could claim to gain on our own, that we come into our inheritance as God's children. Paul says in verse 26, I see your calling. This is not the first time he uses that term calling. This is something you are called to. You're called to the way of the cross. I foresee your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. So it's not through you being clever, not being able to outwit, out-argue, out-debate, out-meme someone. It's not many who are mighty, who are influential, who, who have... 
a lot of control over others. It's not many noble. It's not people of high status. People who are recognized because you are the boss or you have a lot of sway on your board or in your company or in your home. Those are not the ones who are primarily called. God did not call you because you bring a lot to His kingdom and He's really glad to have you on your team, on His team. God calls average people. That makes me really happy. Because there's a lot of, when I look in the mirror, I see a lot of average. And sometimes don't feel capable of much beyond average. And God says, that's all right. He calls you not just because of your strengths. He calls you because He loves you. And He's the one that gave you the strength in the first place. He's also the one that lets you have the weakness so that you'll remember, I actually don't have this all together. We all want to smuggle what we're proudest of into God's kingdom. And God says, I'm sorry, that won't fit through the narrow gate. You'll have to let it go. So are we willing to come through? Are we willing to go through the eye of the needle? You say, I can't fit through an eye of a needle. Look, we serve the God who made the needle, okay? He made you, He made it, but He says you can't bring anything in here with you. It's a tight squeeze, brothers. And it's only by the grace of God that we make it. But it is by the grace of God that we will make it. The door to eternal life is so small you can't fit your wisdom, your superior intellect, your wealth, your skills, your ideologies that would save mankind, your apologetics methods, etc. You can only come to the cross empty-handed. But once you're there, once you're there, He gives you everything. That's the good news of verse 30. But first He says, He tells you actually the reason. You say, but why? I have all these things that I want to do. And, and by all means, do them. Use what you have. Praise God for it. Use it. But... He is telling you, you've got to drop everything because, verse 29, no flesh can glory in His presence. God's glory squeezes out all human bragging. There's no room for me and God, we did this. Why is my marriage the way that it is? It's me. Hey, God, help me, of course. Help my spouse, of course. Nope. God's glory says none of that. Won't go through. 
again. Once, you're, once you come in, you come in empty-handed, everything is then returned to you. Because he says, verse 30, of Him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You who were called to the way of the cross, who had to let go of everything when you come to the cross, of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom. The wisdom of God. Not the wisdom of man, the wisdom of God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now this is in direct contrast with verse 26. When he says, not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So there's not many wise after the flesh, but Jesus has made for you wisdom, the wisdom of God. There's not many noble, there's not many people of influence, but Jesus is given to you and He has made to you right status. He has made holiness. You are now holy. You are now right with the one who matters. So whatever the world thinks of you, who cares? It doesn't matter. And He's also made our redemption. Whereas in the past, we would strive for status. In the place of high status, He gives us redemption, freedom from slavery, freedom from man's, the tyranny of man's expectations. So this keeps us from falling into sectarian divisions through knowing that Jesus redeemed the world, not through human wisdom or domination. So it's not by just following this, per this one particular person's views of what life is, whether Paul or Apollos or any. No, it's not that. It's not by listening enough and, 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 and getting someone that you say, this is the person I'm going to go with and bringing their views or your interpretation of their views in. No. Jesus died to stop all that. The very Son of God refused the path of exercising control for the path of humility, of service, and of death. He submitted His strength to the Father, which was manifested by His sacrificial death, and that action was the only thing that could bring life back to a corrupt world. And the world does not understand this. It never has understood this, and it will not understand this. The world is remade not by us all using our best strength to change it ourselves. It's the supernatural power of God manifested in the daily actions of saints, many of which are not even recognized. So what are your strengths? What are the things you're, that you do that are, you're most confident in? Those are the things the cross will nullify. Are you willing to let God shape, mold, refine, and reassemble you? Are you willing for Him to take your best qualities and put them in their rightful place? The Son of God remade the world through dying. A gruesome, torturous death. And if we want to see the world transformed in submission to Christ, we must sacrifice everything that we think we bring to the table and receive it all resurrected in the person of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank You.
that you are all that we need. We thank you for the wisdom and the goodness of our Savior that we, he has been made for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And now we ask that you would open our eyes to continue in the delight that you promised to us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.